0: Hi, my name is Philip, and welcome back to Deep Tech Stories. With climate change as the current biggest threat to humanity, we're struggling to avoid or even reverse further consequences. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 25% of the in 2010 emitted greenhouse gases come from electricity and heat production via fossil fuels as the biggest contributor. While renewable energies provide an obvious alternative, they don't come without their own downsides, such as strong variants of power production through the day and seasons. Another alternative would be nuclear power. However, leading to toxic waste, high expenses, and possible disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima, that doesn't seem like a wise idea either. But what if there would be a form of nuclear energy that is inherently safe, produces ten times less waste, and much cheaper to build? So-called molten salt reactors, ideally fueled by thorium, differ strongly from well-known light water reactors. Which is why I sat down with podcast host Sean Kenny to explore those differences.
1: Well, if we want to talk about the light water reactor and and just to kind of give some context for your audience, uh, the way a light traditional light water reactor works, for those who don't know, is um, you have these uh, these fuel rods, which are basically just pellets of uranium 235, uh, basically surrounded by zirconium. Uh, They go into a vat of pressurized water uh, and they heat the water up into steam to spin a turbine to generate electricity. That's, you know, that's just a pretty much plain uh, explanation on how a light water reactor works. The reason why you pressurize the water in the reactor is that water doesn't particularly get that hot. It's a hundred degrees Celsius or 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, if you want to get it into higher temperatures to where you can get high pressure steam, you basically pressurize the water um, by several atmospheric pressures doing so you can get the water up to something closer to like 300 C or something like that, maybe a bit higher. Yeah. Um, That, of course, um, you know, so in an essence, a a, a light water reactor is uh, pretty much a a steam kettle or a pressure cooker, uh, if you were to compare it to a household appliance. The advantage is, is obviously you can generate electricity, and even though the reactor itself is less than 1% efficient in consuming the fuel, that less than 1% is far more energy-dense energy dense than um, the uh, massive amount of coal that needs to be burned to generate the equivalent amount of electricity. Now, the problem that you have with a light water reactor, especially a high-pressure one, is you have um, some serious safety concerns. Um, In order to build a light water reactor properly... Um, whether you're talking about Europe or the United States or what have you, uh, you need to build your reactor, and it has to be surrounded by a forged 9-inch thick steel pressure vessel, which in turn is surrounded by another encasement of steel-reinforced concrete. Uh, From a material cost perspective, um, that obviously adds a lot of time and cost associated with construction of your power plant, which, of course, results in you getting into cost delays, time delays. Uh, You know, it could take anywhere between 15 to 20 years to build a proper light water reactor. That's just the cost side of it. The safety side of it is that everything that you have to build for the safety systems, whether it's the backup generators to pump cold water into the reactor uh, to offset decay heat, uh, or any of these things, you're, you're basically preparing for what they refer to as a double-ended pipe break. So you have a complete loss of power in the reactor, you can't pump uh, water into the reactor for some reason, and the core melts down and we see what happened in, in Fukushima and uh, and Three Mile Island and stuff. Um, that contrasts very differently from some of the more advanced reactors that use different materials and uh, obviously do not operate Um, in high pressures, like, say, the molten salt reactor. This molten salt reactor runs completely differently, and the main advantage of that is uh, you're not running at high pressures. You're running at low pressures, in some cases below atmosphere, and you're running at high temperatures. So you have greater thermal efficiencies uh, than what you would get from a light water reactor. So you get a much higher uh, power output in relation to how much fuel you put in the reactor in the first place, if that makes any sense.
0: Mm -hmm. What I was always wondering was um, why only 1% of the fuel is being used.
1: Well, uh, that's pretty much um, in relation to um, the actual makeup of the fuel. So with a solid fuel reactor, the biggest problem that you have is you can't mix a solid. You can mix a liquid and you can mix a gas. You can't mix a solid unless you convert it into a liquid and a gas. And... um, Kind of talking about what we discussed earlier, um, you know, though the light water reactor was ideal for the needs of the United States Navy, it wasn't necessarily intended, at least in its initial design, to really be suitable for uh, commercial applications. Uh, they adopted it later on, you know, as we saw with Shipping Port in Pennsylvania and, uh, and other iterations of that. But the main reason why that reactor was adopted commercially was the Navy really wanted... Uh, wanted solid fuel, uranium-powered nuclear reactors to power fleets of submarines and other naval vessels uh, during the Cold War so that they could have these things operating in the Arctic Circle for weeks or months at a time without ever having to refuel. That made a lot of sense, and the Navy really wanted it. They paid a lot of money in government funding to companies like uh, Westinghouse and GE. The thing is, is... um, um, you know, whether you're a free market guy or not, it, it doesn't take uh, much arithmetic to really determine that when the government's willing to pay the first mover cost associated with a particular technology, um, it makes every other form of nuclear technology pretty much, you know, non-competitive. And you really think as a company, it's like, well, why would we come up with something different? the government's already paid us to build this thing. Why don't we just, instead of building a new thing, let's just adopt this thing and put it into a power plant, which is what they did. The, the shipping port reactor was nothing more than a, uh, it wasn't even a scaled up version of the reactor that was used in, um, in the Nautilus reactor, which was the first nuclear submarine that the U S ever built. Um, you know, um so that that's really kind of why uh, why we're using it. And the reason why some of these other uh, reactors that are being talked about by these, uh, these independent companies that have kind of come out of the woodwork uh, is because they're not using solid fuels, or at least most of them aren't. Um, there are a few exceptions. New Scale Power, which is a company based out of Oregon here in the United States, they just basically have a smaller light water reactor that's just slightly less expensive than conventional means, but... And it, it has some advantages. It has some inherent um engineered safety systems, but at the end of the day, it's still a light water reactor. It's very... It's not really that much different from what's being used today, and the other technologies, they're, they're using... Whether they're using molten salts or liquid sodium, they're using something that doesn't necessarily um, operate under the same parameters as a conventional nuclear power plant.
0: Yeah, and then... So for me, personal problem mm. is that with the, mostly the society and politics are arguing and living around the the thought that there are only light water reactors, when presumably the, the Oak Ridge Laboratory, um, they were doing research on the other designs back in the days when, well, Europe was kind mm. of in shambles after the war, so we had more important mm-hmm. things to do. um, <laughs> And you guys were quite busy with the Russians, so uh, obviously you wanted to have something there for the Navy fleet and potentially nuclear weapon production Mm -hmm. um but by now we should be in a state where like okay everything is decently fine let's call it that um so we should be able to transition or should have been able to transition 20 30 years ago maybe and the question is just why why not
1: well that is a good question and it's one that uh myself and others have uh, struggled to kind of come to grips with but my my best interpretation of what happened and and just to kind of give a little history of here of how the molten salt reactor started cuz there's this the, uh, there are a lot of people out there that are like conspiracy theorists like it's the military industrial complex and they they screwed everything up they they, they this thing didn't make weapons and so that's so what they that's not true that's not why it didn't get adopted actually it couldn't have been far from the truth the military actually helped fund the development of the molten salt reactor so what happened was back in the late 1950s Uh, As I mentioned, the Navy, they had their reactor program with the Nautilus submarine and the USS Enterprise. The Army had their um, reactor program, like Project Iceworm in Greenland. They wanted to have small modular reactors, power remote bases in the Arctic. Uh, So they had those programs. So, of course, the Air Force needed to have a... uh, a, a reactor program. They wanted a nuclear-powered bomber that could fly above the Arctic Circle above Russia so in the event of a nuclear war, they could drop the bomb. So there were a lot of people at Oak Ridge, one of them being um, Alan Weinberg, who was also one of the original inventors of the light water reactor, who kind of looked at that proposal and they figured, you know, okay, so that that actually sounds really stupid, but... I have some ideas on some, uh, some technologies that we can adapt uh, for nuclear and the air force has a lot of money. So, you know, what they really wanted was a reactor that was really lightweight that could still be safe. That could be compact enough to go inside of a bomber, but, uh, but you know, uh, dense enough to power a jet engine. And so they had the fireball experiment and then they, they, which was essentially one of the first implementations of a, um, Molten salt reactor, because obviously with the plane, you can't have these lead line reactors. You can't have, you know, these real heavy, you know, solid fuel rods and, you know, massive amounts of pressurized water. You need something that operates on a, on a different cooling um, spectrum. And obviously the molten salt reactor was ideal for that. So they they got some money. They experimented with it. By the early 1960s, the program was pretty much shut down because the Air Force realized they didn't really need a nuclear-powered bomber because they had uh, mastered in-air refueling and they had nuclear ICBMs uh, and all that stuff. But there was still uh, – they had guys at Oak Ridge had kind of dipped their toes in the water in regards to molten salt research, and they said, okay, well, the Air Force doesn't want us to do this but there's a lot of money because of the whole atoms for peace initiative, you know, brought on by Eisenhower. Let's see what we can do in terms of adopting this concept into a civilian reactor. Let's see if it's even possible to make molten salts work for a, uh, for a nuclear power reactor. And, that started the MSRE, uh, the Molten Salt Reactor Experiment at Oak Ridge National Labs, which w- ran for 22,000 hours from 1965 to 1969. And in those four years, they determined that this was probably one of the most inherently safe, uh, re- you know, nuclear reactor concepts ever built. So you're you're, you're wondering, well, why was this never adopted? Well. Part of it's politics, actually a huge part of it was politics. So we were that wasn't the only project that was being developed. The um, the um, the f- facts uh, the fast spectrum breeder reactors at Livermore National Labs, as well as some other national labs across the country, were being developed. They were well funded, and unlike the molten salt reactor, which was primarily worked on by a lot of people who specialized in chemical engineering, the at least the initial designs of the fast spectrum reactors like the IFRs uh, they were still using solid fuels and they were operating on certain principles that a lot of the nuclear engineers at the time were still familiar with they didn't really like the molten salt reactor because they, uh because to them it was like starting over it's like we this is so radically different than what we learned in, in school what we learned in at university it, for us we're, we're not um we're 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 not a big fan just because we don't want to We don't want to reinvent the wheel here. The other side of that, the political side, was um, Chet Holifield, who was the Atomic Energy Commissioner uh, back in the 1960s and 70s, was from Southern California. And uh, Richard Nixon, who was the president at that time, was also from California. And the way that they basically pitched it was, if we were going to spend any you know, taxpayer dollars on nuclear energy research. It should not go to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It should go to Southern California, which is where they were doing a lot of the, uh, those experiments. So that's part of the reason why it didn't get adopted. Um, And then of course, to make matters worse, in the 1970s, we had Three Mile Island. In the 1980s, we had the Chernobyl incident. There was this massive growing environmental movement of anti-nuclear protesters uh, you know, that were well-funded, well-organized. And that became sort of a platform of not so much the radicals, but the left in general. And by even though in the 1980s we had developed other forms of the fast-spectrum reactors that were inherently safe, by the early 1990s we had basically shut down all DOE funding uh, for those experiments. So that's primarily why... The molten salt reactor and the other designs were not adopted. It was mainly just because of politics, uh, public fear and mistrust in the system and in regards to nuclear power and just a lot of lack of knowledge. I I feel like if there was an Internet back in the 1970s, you probably would not have the energy landscape that we have today because you'd have more people who would have been able to educate themselves on nuclear power uh, to learn. Well, this actually is much safer than what we're using today. Um, that's that's my that's my thoughts anyway.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about the the internet hypothesis um, considering <laughs> the current state.
1: <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Because <laughs> yeah. there's there there's still some anti new. You're you're absolutely right. There are still some anti new keys. But to to be fair, there are a lot more people who know more about thorium and molten salt reactors yeah. and have developed interest specifically because of the internet. If you went back to the 1960s or 70s, even though that. A lot of the stuff was being done. Nobody would know what the hell you were talking about, mm. let alone understand how a light water reactor works, unless you were, you know, a nuclear engineer. You know, I'm not a nuclear engineer um, in practice or in training, but you know, I know everything that I know because of the internet. And the same thing goes with my audience on my show and um, and and whatnot. Just because they are, they have all this access to information that we just didn't have before. So it's encouraging because you even see, I can't speak for every country, but at least in my country, there are several prominent uh, political figures that are not just pro-nuclear, but have actively supported the development of molten salt reactors in this country. Um, Case in point, Andrew Yang and uh, Cory Booker. Andrew Yang, if you went back to his uh, campaign site when he ran for... For the uh, Democrat primary in 2020, um, he wanted to, he actually wanted to go as far as spending $50 billion to develop a molten salt reactor program in this country that specifically operated on, on the thorium fuel cycle. I, I don't know what the details of that were in terms of how he wanted to spend it, but I mean, that's not a small amount of money. That's like, that's a pr- pretty big, uh, that's a pretty big commitment mm-hmm. to resources for this one problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was also the uh, there was also Bill Gates trying to, to figure out how to do it. And I think he wanted to buy uh, nuclear waste from from China, if I remember correctly.
1: Well, um, I don't know about buying nuclear waste. I know that initially with TerraPower, which is the company that he's directly funded in, he wanted to build a um, – what was it called? The Traveling Wave Reactor, which uh, was a fast-spectrum reactor that um, – Obviously it would just basically be powered by a chunk of uranium underground and it would basically just go through its entire fuel cycle over the course of like 50 or 60 years and would never have to be refueled. It would just basically just sit there. I know that he initially had talked about going into some other designs such as the chloride fast reactor, which some other companies are also looking into. That's not what he's doing now. That's not what he's being funded by the DOE. But initially what I understood was he wanted to outsource the development of his reactor to China uh, to build a traveling wave reactor. Um, You know, I I forget exactly where the site was going to be located and they were almost set up to do it. But uh, amidst the Trump administration, yes, there were severe tariffs and there were some severe political, um, um, instruments that were in place that made it extremely difficult for him to outsource his design. So he basically had to reevaluate in terms of how to go about doing that. Um, thankfully for him, his his company was one of two that were actually, um, funded through a major grant by the department of energy, uh, to develop, um, their, one of their designs and implement it into the commercial markets within the next decade or so. Mm. So, uh, so there, so there's that, um, and then going into the nuclear waste, I, I don't see why anyone would want to import nuclear waste to the United States, considering that we have a, a sufficient amount of nuclear waste now that needs to be uh, that needs to be handled. You know, I mean, look, it, 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 I would actually make the argument if we adopt a policy uh, where we. You know, take the waste management fund, put it into companies like Moltex and Elysium, and make reactors that run on nuclear waste. I would have no problem importing waste uh, from other countries if they say, "Look, we, will you take this off our hands for us and, and generate electricity for it?" Yeah, sure, we'll take it, or hell, yeah. we'll do you one better. We'll 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 export you these reactors, and you can you can get rid of it yourself. You know, <laughs> save you save you the transportation costs. So I'm, I'm I can go both ways on
0: that. Yeah. Um, you touched upon the, the safety of the fast and the molten salt reactors. Um, yes. Could you just explain on why they would be inherently safe? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. So again, like I said, the, the thing with light water reactors, it's solid fuel, it's uh, liquid moderator, and it's high pre- uh, pressure, low temperature. With a molten salt reactor, it's liquid fuel, solid moderator, and then you have high temperature, low pressure. Because you're operating on this spectrum here, because you're not, uh, I mean, we'll just talk about pressure. By operating at a lower pressure than than a conventional nuclear power plant, you don't need to build the same kind of safety infrastructure that you would have to do with a conventional power plant. So you don't need need a nine-inch thick steel pressure vessel. You don't need to have a a concrete containment dome. Uh, You don't really have to worry about the backup power supplies needed to keep the reactor cool because... Uh, salts are chemically stable, It's that they're actually self-regulating in the sense that if this material were to uh, expose itself to outside air, it would literally freeze. So if there was a crack in the reactor vessel, it'd actually plug up the crack. Um, and uh, if you wanted to drain it into a drain tank, say i don't know if an earthquake happened or a tsunami or what have you you would basically just drain the fuel into a tank and it would solidify and it wouldn't you know cause any harm to the general po- uh, you know populace so that's one major safety aspect uh, that are actually several safety aspects i just listed off that a molten salt reactor has over a conventional uh light water reactor you know by not using solid fuels and just running off of a, a liquid you know fuel salt um you have a lot of, uh, you know, um, safety benefits that just on the basis that you don't have to operate at uh, at high pressures. The other advantage to that, and this is more of a cost benefit, because you don't have to spend all that money on those additional materials, one, you're saving money on material costs, and two, you can build your reactor much smaller, so much that instead of, Doing 90% of the construction on site, you can only do, you could do about 10% of the construction and the other 90% can be done on the factory floor. You basically can just mass produce these things in an assembly line, thus bringing the cost of those uh, reactors down considerably, you know, oh, to, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, to about a fraction of what a conventional light water reactor would cost. I mean, here in the United States, I, I can't speak for, for Europe um but I think here in the United States, I think it's something like um I think it's like something like eight dollars per watt or like eight thousand dollars per kilowatt for a conventional nuclear power plant. A lifter or a molten salt reactor would be about something on the line of like about two thousand.
0: Two thousand what?
1: Per I'm sorry, two thousand dollars per kilowatt hour. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for the for the reactor design.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we touched the, or basically to recapitulate, the, the light water reactor has the possibility of blowing up in my face like any potential high-pressure cooker, Um, only that there's radioactive material in there, which is eh, yeah, you- not particularly beneficial.
1: <laughs> not, not really. No. <laughs> you, don't, um, you don't want to get in on it. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> and then the, the molten salt reactor just, yeah, it just solidifies. Um, mm. And it runs on thorium, as you mentioned several times
1: well um you know you could use thorium and in my uh, in my perfect world scenario yeah thorium would be the the fuel of choice because it is far more plentiful than conventional uh, than uranium uh, it's actually one of the most abundant uh, nuclear fuels in the Earth's crust um, and uh, you would still use uranium but you would use only the at least the highly enriched stuff like uranium 233 or 235, you'd only use a small amount of it just to kind of get things going. The rest of it could just be thorium and you could run it there. That's what, uh, what I would prefer to use. But if you, you don't have to use a, um, you don't have to use thorium to run a molten salt reactor. There are several companies that are developing designs that run on, uh, that can run on different things. You can run uranium. Uh, you could do a uranium burner reactor. You can do a breeder design. Um, Ideally, I would say if you are going to use uranium in any capacity without using thorium, I would say that the most ideal use case would be just running it on spent nuclear fuel uh here in the u s Europe you know Asia, there are sufficient stockpiles of uh, nuclear waste uh that could run uh for centuries you know here in my country it could be uh the same case in other countries uh you know sweden germany uh you know
0: Nobody's obviously spending.
1: the, the yeah, yeah. The The French still have a sufficient amount of, um, they have a lot less than we do, obviously, but because they do reprocessing, but they have sufficient amounts to where they could still run uh, their economy off of uh, spent nuclear fuel. Um, but uh, there, there, are, there are all kinds of designs. Keep in mind, a molten salt reactor is basically just that, a reactor that runs on molten salt. It, it doesn't specify the fuel concept. The only reactor that really does is, you know, besides the Thorcon design, is... Of course, the 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 liquid fluoride thorium reactor that was proposed by fly Energy. Hmm. But if you but if you ask for my personal preference, I I, I like the thorium designs just because they're they're a much more plentiful fuel. You don't even have to mine the thorium uh, in most cases because it, in many uh, in many countries it's a waste byproduct of uh, of rare earth mining in China when they do their rare earth mining in the Gobi Desert uh, they separate all the the rare earths they send it out to the refineries for processing and then they take the thorium and they put them in bags and they just leave them out into the desert to just kind of bake in the sun with the intention that one day uh we're going to go ahead and convert that into energy by just you know as, as a waste product which you know another reason why i like thorium so much is you could just you know mm. you're just clearing you're just cleaning up those waste streams
0: yeah um you mentioned the the breeder reactor mm. um with with waste how would that work
1: so uh, so just to give some context here, a breeder reactor um, is essentially just a nuclear fission reactor that produces more fissile material than it consumes. So in essence you um, uh, in an essence like in a lifter, for example, uh, you put a small amount of uranium-233 and thorium 232 and during your operations, not only are you producing energy and process heat and all these other things, but you're also producing, Uh, other fission products that can be siphoned off and can be sold into uh, various markets. Uh, Things like xenon gas and neodymium, though they're not that valuable compared to the other stuff. The amount of money that you could sell off that would, you know, would uh, pay for the fuel for the reactor. Uh, Other stuff that are more valuable are things like plutonium-238, which NASA uses for deep space probes, um, like the Curiosity rover, um and uh, the new horizon space probes uh, but the the real the real you know di- diamond in there is the Axon 225 which will decay into bismuth 213 that could be used for targeted alpha therapy which could be a radical new approach to to treating cancer patients um you know there are other things that you could get from a breeder reactor of course depending on what your fuel cycle is but a breeder reactor by definition is just a reactor that produces more fissile material than it consumes and thus doesn't need as much fissile material to operate it's a lot more energy efficient it's like to put it into layman's terms it's the difference between a tesla and a uh, ford f-150 pickup truck You know, one is obviously more fuel efficient than the other in terms of how much energy it consumes relation to how much performance you get. A burner reactor, which is essentially just any reactor that just consumes nuclear fuel and, um, you know, generates electricity from that. So a light water reactor in that sense or a heavy water reactor will essentially just be a burner reactor. The Thorcon design, which... Though that is a molten salt reactor, it is a thorium reactor, it's not a breeder reactor. It, it just consumes thorium and uranium and generates electricity. It just does it in a much more efficient way than a conventional light water reactor does.
0: And where does the, the use of waste go in there, in this whole equation?
1: Uh, for the
0: Thorcon design? For or just. Any-
1: Well, that's another reason why I love the molten salt reactor so much. And uh, frankly, the same thing, my audience, you know, again, as I mentioned with a light water reactor, uh, you're producing less than 1% of the, you're consuming less than 1% of the fuel in the reactor. Um, And then the other 99 or 98% Basically, gets uh, chucked away as spent nuclear fuel that just sits there until somebody figures out how to deal with the waste. With a molten salt reactor, because the fuel is in liquid form and you can, you know, you can combine other materials in there, you can actually burn up the inverse of that. So instead of one percent, it's ninety nine percent. The other one percent that's left over, like I said, if it's a breeder reactor, you can, you know, you can obviously get all the various materials, but the stuff that you can't use, so the higher actinides and whatnot, that will need to be kept in geological isolation. But we're talking about less than 0.017% of the fuel that's left over that needs to be cordoned off. And that fuel only stays radioactive for about three centuries, which is a long time granted, but it's not as bad as the nuclear waste that we process. You know, that stays radioactive for about 10,000 years. Uh, plutonium, you know, weapons grade stuff that stays radioactive for 24,000 years. So it's a long time. It's not astronomically long compared to the other stuff. So in, in terms of waste, it's, it, it's not even a fair comparison. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're consuming a, uh, you're producing a coffee can's worth of, uh, waste to power a lar- you know, f- for the amount of energy that you would need to power a large city, like say Boston, Massachusetts, for example, you know, um, it, it, it's really small by comparison to every other, not just nuclear, but just every other form of energy production out there. I, right? I don't have to tell you this, but you know, the, the biggest issue that I have with coal in terms of, um, the way we use it right now is nobody, and people talk about the pollution. They talk about the, uh, carbon emissions. They don't talk about the solid fuel, uh, the solid waste that comes from just these ash tailings that basically just gets, you know, stuck there and you know god forbid it's located near a fresh water source because uh if there's a major storm a lot of that stuff gets inundated and it's just it's a big you know environmental problem for the utility company and obviously mm-hmm. the surrounding community you you can't even compare that to a molten salt reactor which literally produces this much waste to power us you know for the amount of fuel that you would use to power a city for a year
0: yeah so it- Basically, my whole education on the topic was just last few days, a Wikipedia-fueled uh, late-night read. <laughs> um, and there, the the articles are pretty good on there, which shocked me was they mentioned that you could use the one ton of thorium to produce the same amount of energy as 400 tons of the, the usual uranium you would use, compared to the usual 400,000 tons of coal or something along the lines of that, which is...
1: Am I- might even be higher than that,
0: but yeah that, that sounds about
1: right um i I think what really sold it on me is you know we were talking about the mining aspect. we were talking about just you know utilizing the waste streams there's um there's a gentleman um, here in the United States in Missouri. His name is Jim Kennedy and he's the founder of an organization called Three Consulting, which deals with thorium and rare earth and for years they've been trying to get legislation ba- passed to make it easier to do rare earth mining in the United States. One of the aspects that he he sells it on is a good-sized rare earth mines, like some some mines that are being explored here in the United States, will produce about 5,000 tons of thorium as waste on an annual basis. 5,000 tons is about enough to power, I would say, something close to about 80, maybe 85% of the world's energy needs for about a year. And that's everything. That's electricity, that's heat, that's... Chemical energy, because, and we haven't even gotten into the process applications, but you can you can make liquid fuels, uh, you know, uh, as part of the process waste heat applications from a molten salt reactor, which is another advantage that no other um, energy uh, technology really has by, by comparison.
0: Mm. And then the I think it was Thorcon that mentioned to you that, or probably also mentioned in general that they could use the the current amount of waste that we have for, as you mentioned before, for three centuries um, to fuel the the yeah. breeder cycle.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when we interviewed Ed File, I, I actually didn't know what the actual figure was, uh, and, and that was this thing at Elysium. That that's what they're doing. Elysium, they're yes. building a molten chloride salt fast reactor to build a um, uh, to build a reactor that. Uh, can run on any fuel cycle, it can run on thorium, could can run on uranium, but ideally he wants to focus on the uh, waste-burning uh, design because we have so much nuclear waste here in the country, and he'd be performing a, a public service just by taking it off our hands for us. So I asked him, so with all the fuel that we have, um, uh, with the 73,000 metric tons of nuclear waste, how much how does that relate to the consumer? Like how, how, how much energy can we produce from this one waste stockpile? And he says, okay, well we gotta, we gotta go back and we gotta, we gotta lay in some perspective. So if we're just, if we're talking about replacing every nuclear plant that we have in this country, in the United States, which right now we have just under a hundred, like I think it's like 98, 99 reactors that meet about 20% of our energy consumption right now or production. Um, there would be enough to power us for about uh, something like 15 or 1600 years. If we wanted all of our energy to come from these reactors, um, all of electricity, so all the coal plants, all the gas plants, all the renewables, everything has just been destroyed and everything runs on these you know chloride fast reactors. Uh, it would be about 320 years. And then if you wanted to convert everything, um, not just electricity, but every form of energy, uh, thermal, chemical, whatever, because electricity only meets, uh, is about a quarter of the energy that we actually produce uh, in relation to the scale of it, uh, we'd still have enough energy to last for about 80 years or so. So just that one resource right there would be enough to keep us uh, going there. And that's just one company with one design. They're, they're literally uh, over a dozen companies, uh, most of which are are looking to pursue that, like Moltex, which is also looking at uh, doing a waste-burning design. Uh, Copenhagen Atomics is also looking to do a waste-burning uh, molten salt reactor. Um, Thorcon isn't. Um, from my understanding, Thorcon is just basically just saying, we're going to build a, therm- a thermal burner thorium reactor that will just use a combination of uranium-235 and and Thorium-232, and we are designing it this way because it is essentially a scaled-up version of the uh, MSRE experiment. We don't have to spend a bunch of money in R&D and new research. A lot of it's already been done for us by the government. We're just taking this application, we're scaling it up, and we're applying it to the needs of our uh, potential customer, which is Indonesia, which is exploring the possibility of adopting molten salt reactors uh, to meet its uh, growing energy demands.
0: Mm. Yeah, I must have mixed it up with with just Too much information uh, and uh, no, okay. too little time.
1: <laughs> uh, I know. I, b- believe me, it, it, it's a lot to cover. And that that was actually when we, my my producer Jessica and I, we started going into this. So that was one of my concerns. It's like, hey, would you be interested in doing a show? I'm like. I can do a show. I just want, I don't know if people would watch it. And two, I don't know if there'd be enough content to, uh, to uh, keep it going. And it turns out I was so wrong because there's so many people who are interested in this subject that is, that are just like me, who just love this stuff. And where we kind of sort of found our niche is we don't just talk about or update people on these companies and the technologies and have these interviews like what we did with Thomas Jan Peterson or Ed File. But we also talk about the specific process applications that could be applied for other industries. So the renewable industry, the fossil fuel industry, uh, we talk about producing synthetic fuels. We talk about uh, the economics of the liquid fluoride thorium reactor in relation to other technologies and how it's much more favorable than anything else. Because Unlike a traditional power plant of any kind where all you're doing is producing electricity, you can sell other products such as medical isotopes, liquid fuels, desalinated water, or just industrial process heat that could be used for things like aluminum smelting and stuff.
0: You mentioned the the additional processes um, quite a lot which just go in there. Yeah. So we have a few episodes on it already, mostly about... I mean the things that mm-hmm. caught my attention were the, the energy storage the propulsion because I would only mm-hmm. know about the uh, the classic uh, fusion reactor propulsion which is my, my nerdy topic yeah. um, <laughs> and then obviously the the mars um the mars energy supply up there um, yeah. and now you touched on the synthetic fuel and uh, medical isotopes and everything just
1: Yeah uh, god where do I yeah, where do I start? <laughs> um, okay, well let's well first off, when I say process heat, let's talk about uh, let's let's emphasize what I'm talking about. That so um, a a design for a molten salt reactor, a typical molten salt reactor. I, I almost hate using that term because there is no such thing because we haven't built these things in large quantities yet. But it, but if you compare it to all the other designs. Most of the companies that I talk about on the show, they look at operating somewhere between 600 and 700 degrees Celsius um, in terms of temperature, uh, you know, that, that, that is the operating temperature of these reactors. Um, the thing is, is once you, you know, you use up the fuel and you you go through the Brayton cycles and you generate electricity, you still have a considerable amount of waste heat that's left uh, uh, off, it's called entropy that needs to be it has to be used for something. I mean, it just, otherwise it just, you know, I mean, you could cool it off or whatever, but 650 or 700 degree waste heat is nothing to scoff at. You can do some very serious industrial processes. You could, um, you know, you could melt steel. uh, You could, um, uh, you could desalinate water very effectively. Uh, One of my favorite applications that I like to talk about is um, taking coal, which is the, dirtiest fossil fuel known to man i think we can all agree on that and converting it into very clean synthetic liquid fuels um why would you do this well
0: what are synthetic fuels
1: so synthetic fuels are basically just liquid fuels that um obviously uh, are uh produced in a different manner than say um, regular petroleum-based fuels. You know, you could, you could, you know, basically, you're just changing the feedstock. So obviously, you have uh, there, there are biofuels you can look into. There's, uh, you can make synthetic fuels by either, um, either uh, sucking up carbon or carbonic acid from seawater or carbon dioxide from the air. So basically, you're just, you're just taking the carbon feedstock and you're applying it from something else and you're putting it into. Something that's um, similar to what we use today to power like a jet engine or a diesel, you know, engine for a boat or something. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but coal um, is sort of just it, a lot of people. There are a lot of negative connotations with coal and rightly so. It, again, like I said, it is the dirtiest fossil fuel known to man. It it produces a considerable amount of, of solid waste. It produces a considerable amount of emissions but that's just because we burn coal the same way that we did about 150 years ago it is an extremely inefficient you know process we're basically just burning coal and boiling water and making steam and generating electricity and as i have discussed there are far much more cleaner and efficient ways to uh, to do that you know a, a light water reactor would be far more efficient and in, uh, in boiling water to make steam to generate electricity. Of course, I'm not advocating that we do that for everybody, but <laughs> obviously, the other, uh, uh, obviously the other designs that we have or that, or that other companies have uh, come forward with are much more efficient than that. So do we forget about coal? Well, I suppose you could. Um, there are a lot of industries, there are a lot of places around the world that uh, actually depend on this as one of their major exports. And obviously there are a lot of good-paying jobs in the coal industry. So that really kind of raises the question, is, there, uh, is the future just going to be no more coal and these people are left by the wayside? Or can we take this resource and turn it into something that everybody can use and make it you know, more akin to a 21st century economy? And I think that the way you do that is you can take the waste process heat from a molten salt reactor and using that, uh, that large temperature coefficient, you could basically take coal... And you could go through a variety of chemical processes, and you can convert that coal into uh, liquid fuels. Now, when I say liquid fuels, I'm not talking about ethanol or methanol or dimethyl ether. I'm talking about uh, the same diesel, gasoline, and jet fuel that is used um, and everyday uses to power a regular Boeing 747, a, uh, a large shipping vessel, uh, my car that I use you know to drive here today. Um, um, you know, that stuff. It's a, it's a legit drop and replacement. It's been done before. There, there's a process called fischer which basically converts coal into, say, gasoline or diesel. Uh, South Africa has done it. Uh, the Germans did it during World War II because they didn't have sufficient quali- uh, quantities of petroleum and they they had a lot of coal so they converted that mm-hmm. into that what was actually interesting is uh the the british pilots hated going up against the uh the german uh the messerschmitts because the fuel they used was of a higher octane rating than the regular petroleum based stuff that the brits were using for their for their spit, uh, for their spitfires <laughs> so i i thought that was kind of interesting the the thing is is when you have These processes that I'm talking about, we know how to do it. We know how to convert coal into liquid fuels. The reason we don't is because the energy that is typically used to convert that is coal. And you don't want to burn coal to take coal and turn coal into liquid fuels. That's just stupid. But if you're already producing electricity from, say, nuclear, and you have all this waste heat left over and you need to do something with it, it becomes more beneficial for you to do so uh, or to convert coal into liquid fuels because... Obviously, um, the waste heat is free, and because the waste heat is free, you can actually do additional processing on it. So it's actually much cleaner than conventional uh, gasoline or diesel or, or or jet fuel, mind you. And uh, you can sell it at a fraction of the price of conventional petroleum products, and you can uh, produce another byproduct that will help offset your capital expenditure to build said power plant. Mm you know which is which to me i i think it makes nothing in sense now the question is again why would you do it well because again here in the united states we have a considerable portion of uh people who you know like in west virginia and indiana and and you know wyoming that you know they 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 make their livelihood off of this and we don't want to forget those people the other aspect of it is uh if you took all of the coal reserves in north america alone there is more chemical energy in just those reserves than in all the oil that is known or is technically recoverable today. So just to put that into perspective, um, we're talking about something that kind of outpaces, I think, what, like a trillion, maybe a trillion and a half barrels of petroleum resources around the world if we include Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Middle East, Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nordic states, yeah, I know Norway. Um, those countries they have a, you know, their own sufficient quantities of uh, of, uh, of petroleum. But uh, coal, uh, if you just took North America, just those coal reserves there, it would just it would be a, it would be a resource akin to more energy in, in terms of the chemical content than all the o- world's oil, you know, reserves combined. So mm. that that's another aspect that I sort of advocate for it. But, uh, and that's just, and again, that's just one process application. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm, I recently moved from California. Um, one of the reasons I moved is, you know, the utility costs are pretty high there. Uh, the water costs are pretty high there. Uh, we don't have, uh, as many sufficient quantities of fresh water, uh, that we used to. And, um, but we do have a very large uh, body of water, you know, uh, known as the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and uh, with that with that process heat, you could desalinate seawater in a very environmentally benign manner. And you can make fresh drinking water for all of the Southern California and possibly even Northern California, depending on how you... Uh, how you implemented it and how, where you put these things. If you would just put a power plant on the coastal, you could desalinate, um, you know, billions of gallons of seawater on an annual basis, uh, that could be used for farming. It could be used for drinking, what have you. And that's just, that's just North America. I mean, obviously in other countries, uh, where you do not have, uh, sufficient drinking water or access to certain electricity, you, you obviously get the best of both worlds there. Uh, we talked about the fissile isotopes um i mean if we want to go really crazy if we want to talk about mars i mean where do you where do you start and, ha- and how far can you go when you have a large high temperature reactor operating on a planet with vital resources that are necessary to sustain a thriving technological civilization i mean with 700 degrees you know or 600 degree waste heat I mean, you could you could process materials. You could process metals. You can make steel. You can make aluminum to make more spaceships on the surface of Mars. Um, you could uh, you could extract uh, various fluorocarbons. You could do a ter- you could do mass terraforming on the planet uh, by just producing all the different um, uh, materials from the regolith and just you know terraforming the surface, just raising the temperature of Mars so that you can actually. Um, you know produce an atmosphere slightly akin to earth, so that you actually can have liquid water on the surface instead of it just being evaporated from the soil um and that's just the uh the the biosphere stuff if we're talking about just sustaining a colony um you might not even need to do that you could just build all your your uh your life support systems underground where they're protected from cosmic rays and solar flares, and you could just produce all of your agriculture underground. We could do the same thing here and uh, on Earth. You know, it, uh, agriculture, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's a considerable amount of waste uh, streams and uh, that a lot of people don't consider when it comes to wastewater, when it comes to... Um you know how we um how we raise certain crops mm-hmm. uh you could you could uh, you could of course change that by you know putting a lot of your crops indoors. the reason we don't is electricity is just not cheap enough uh but with a molten salt reactor uh instead of having to pay you know i think the you know i think the national average here is like you know twelve to thirteen cents uh you could probably get it down to about three to five cents per kilowatt hour for electricity um and with that kind of, uh, with those kind of savings, I mean, there's, there's really nothing that can restrict you from, uh, um, from just going nuts with it. And this, this is something I, I I have a big passion about, um, just because of the fact that, you know, a lot of people, they look at energy as, yes, it's necessary, but it's, it's kind of like a necessary evil because, you know, coal pollutes, natural gas pollutes, you know, there are restrictions to what you can do with renewables, nuclear, you know, there's some, there's safety as, you know, problems with that. A lot of people kind of look at energy as the boogeyman, like we need it, but there's this problem. Well, what if it wasn't? What if energy was clean and it produced, you know, a, a one percentage of the waste that most conventional plants did and there weren't any serious negative repercussions that prevented you from doing this well then you could use more energy and then you could do more things with that energy that nobody would have thought possible you know 50 or 100 years ago or you know we go 50 to 100 years from now i think people are going to be using energy in a way that we just would have thought was just crazy to us now (laughs) just because of what we're just because of what we're using but that's that's mainly why uh i love talking about this so much
0: yeah with a bit of luck in 100 to 150 years uh, fusion might still be 40 years away um as it has been going well, for the last 80 years i think
1: well you know you know we 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 talked about that in, a, in an episode last year where we were talking about commonwealth fusion mm. um and th- this is another thing that i love about uh again this this recent renaissance in the nuclear industry is you have so many companies for-profit companies that are just sort of popping out out of the woodwork and they're uh they're, they're looking to achieve these designs and they're trying to develop commercial markets for it and, um, and all this stuff. But um, what I love about um, w- the, thing, the thing a lot of people say is like, oh, you know, fusion's great, but it's always 30 or 40 years away. Well, it's 30 or 40 years away because when the programs uh, got internationalized and we had the, the ITER experiment, and you know, they, it, at first it took them like 15, 20 years just to figure out where they wanted to put the damn thing. And now they're, that, now they're building it. And that's probably not going to get built until uh, the middle or later part of this decade. And then it might be another like 15 or 20 years before they actually commercialize it. And the technology that they're using for IDER, the International Tokamak uh, Experiment, um, they're using technologies that we were talking about back in the 1990s, which is fine. I'm not, I'm not. Not crapping on 90s tech in any way, <laughs> way, shape, or form, but we have developed so many materials and technologies that are so much better and so much more advanced than what we're using now. And What I like about what Commonwealth is doing, specifically in Massachusetts, is they're using very high-efficiency yttrium uh, um uh, y- uh, rare-earth magnets. Uh, by comparison to the superconducting magic magnets that ITER is using. They use less than a fraction of the um, energy that is needed to consume, and it's you know f- far more dense in terms of its ability to do inertial confinement. So I don't think in regards to fusion, I know this is very different than what we typically talk about on the show, but uh, I-, I think if we allow private companies like Commonwealth, like General Fusion, like Tri-Alpha, to develop these different technologies, I think we'll probably end up seeing fusion get into the mainstream, probably within the next 10 to 15 years, not 30 or 40. So, I mean, again, there, there, there's a, there's a, there's a difference between operating on a private spectrum and operating on the government. I'm not saying that government programs aren't, aren't great. Obviously, we wouldn't be where we are with our current nuclear energy uh, energy industry if it wasn't for the gains that we got from the, you know, from the government sector, but I think now is the time where I think we've learned enough to where we can transition into the commercial markets and we can develop, you know, better technologies to um, to adopt into the uh to utility spectrum and stuff and i I think fusion is going to have a place there too Mm.
0: i mean i really hope for it um i'm Mm. not going to crap on it if it's there suddenly in 10 or 15 years that's definitely not going to be the case
1: absolutely i'm I'm very optimistic when it comes to fusion um Mm. but i i I like to know that even if for whatever reason we can't figure out fusion fission is going to do the job just fine yeah you know, again, and then
0: we still have not even a hundred years left, basically, yeah. to figure out something else in the in the meantime. Um,
1: and that's just with that's just with spent fuel. Yeah. That is just I, I want to emphasize that is not with current uranium stockpiles. That's not with thorium. That's just with spent fuel, which is the waste streams that we've already produced from fifty or sixty years of producing nuclear power. If we wanted to use something like thorium. I mean, it, it could be thousands of years. It could be tens of thousands of years. It, it just, it's just—it's too common to even conceive that we'd ever run out of it. And that's just on this planet. If we go out to other planets, if we go to Mars, if we go to—you know—beyond the solar system, I, I'm running out of numbers at this point. <laughs> it's just—it's just so much. You know, you'll you'll, you'll have to uh, you'll have to develop new numbers just to yep. uh, just to figure out how long this uh, this resource will last, but. So um, again, I'm I'm very optimistic based on the stuff that I've uh, been researching for for many years.
0: Yeah. To finish it up, you uh, you mentioned you don't have the formal education in it, and I emphasize no. formal in this. You do sound like someone that really, really could have studied it, if I'm honest, and spent tens of years in this industry, and yeah. um, not mm-hmm. just in in air quotes, in big air quotes, um, have a podcast, yeah. podcast, and be be passionate about it. So the question would mm-hmm. be, besides your amazing podcast which i binge through in a day basically um plus the you Wikipedia pages where is a place where could people could look things up or how did you start reading about all this
1: it's a good that's a very good question so we we talked about it earlier before we started recording here is um i started off um i started off very differently i started in the whole digital arts and design space i i the what i what got me into thorium and and Molten. So I've always been interested in nuclear power. I'm from Northern Virginia originally. The electricity that we got came from a uh, the North Anna nuclear power station. I used to go there uh, by the lake. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a family tradition. We'd have family gatherings there, and when we would go into the water there, we'd see this big thing. And like this power plant produces 20 percent of the electricity of my home state, which I thought was just. You know, ridiculous. There's just no way that this one power plant could it could attribute to that much power. But when I started learning into the science, that's kind of what made me interested in nuclear. That's always been in the back of my mind. It was not my core focus when I went to college, but when I graduated, I moved to D.C. I got a job working um, for a um, medical trade association, which specialized in radiology and medical science, nuclear science, and uh, finding out new ways to treat and diagnose cancer. I didn't connect the two until years later, but once I started learning more about the thorium stuff, eventually I realized that there was a connection to what my uh, company, or I should say the trade association I worked for was doing, because um, the medical isotopes that we wanted to talk about for cancer treatments were the same ones that were being, or con- you know, conceived to be produced from the liquid fluoride thorium reactor. So from from that on, I got hooked. Uh, my main resource to a lot of this was the Gordon uh, McDowell YouTube channel and Thorium Remix. Um, every time there was a conference, whether it was a Thorium Energy Alliance conference or a uh, International Thorium Energy conference, I always watched those videos just to kind of, I guess, keep my uh, finger on the button to find out. What companies were doing what, where they were with their designs, where they were in terms of commercial output. I also watched various uh, TED Talks and learning about where we were from a uh, government perspective, uh, you know, in terms of where we were from regulatory policy, how far we were from implementing this. Um, And uh, in recent years, it just kind of exploded because we've seen a lot of uh, interesting financial and regulatory developments that have actually favored the nuclear energy industry, specifically in the advanced nuclear space. You you have not just companies sprouting up, but you actually have companies that are actually qualifying for DOE grants and DOE funding to, you know, implement their designs uh, to, to get these things in the market. You know, of course... There's a lot more that can be done, and I did a whole Christmas episode just kind of giving my Christmas list of what I would like the U.S. government to do to kind of accelerate this process. And uh, I will be coming up with some materials to try and uh, help speed that along eventually. But, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking that within the next 10 to 15 years, there'll probably be some more advanced reactors coming out of the United States and into the commercial sphere. We talked about new scale briefly. Uh, I think they're going to have their reactor up and running uh, before the uh, before the end of this decade. And from there, we'll see. I, I mean, uh, as long as I ha- have the time to do so, and as long as people will watch and listen, I, I will continue doing a show where I will uh, keep, uh, you know, keep giving updates in ter- terms of what the commercial industry is going to be doing, uh, getting this technology to market. But I I guess for people who want to learn more about this stuff, um, I would say, uh, I mean, you can always come, (laughs) plug my channel. Uh, uh, My my channel is uh, Rock Logic with Sean Kenny, which is a show that specifically focuses on advanced nuclear, how it relates to geopolitics. Uh, We have some great people on the show that come on, uh, like Ed File and uh, Thomas Jan Peterson. We took a bit of a hiatus recently because... um, uh, there's been some developments with my work. Uh, I recently moved from uh, California to Fort Worth, Texas, where uh, we're building a new studio out here to do new episodes. And we're going to be doing some uh, some projects down the road that are going to sort of expand uh, our, our coverage a little bit more in terms of the subject matter. Um, Gordon McDowell, uh, love his channel to death. He, he's always producing great stuff. Uh, he gets really in depth with, uh, going face to face with people like Ed File, uh, like, uh, Kirk Sorensen at Flybe Energy, uh, just kind of just learning about what's happening in this industry and what's happening in this space and, and how it's developing. Um, you know, um, I, I think if you really want to get really into it, um, if you live in the United States, I, I, I would join the Thorium Energy Alliance. They, they uh, recently, they haven't been able to do much in the, in the conference space, but every year or so when uh, things kind of stabilize with the whole COVID pandemic, uh, they, I, I believe they're going to be doing another, um, I think they're going to be doing another conference later this year, if not early next year. I'm not 100% sure about that, but there's a lot of really great resources for people to learn more about uh, molten salt reactor technology and how it's being
0: developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to put it all into the show notes, which is, well, already a lot. Oh, perfect. But that has been pretty much it. I'm very thankful for having you, for explaining it concise in a layman's terms. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Philip. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hi, Philip here. Before you leave, I just wanted to thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something in this episode. If that is the case, why not message me at philip at deeptextstories.io. I'm always curious about what you took away and look forward to a discussion with you. That is p-h-i-l-i-p-p at deeptextories.io. It would also help me out a great deal if you could recommend the episode to a friend of yours that might find it interesting as well. See you again next time when I talk with Professor Katarina D'Oglioni about how she tries to figure out what dark matter is.